Hey, we're back. Disability Law Show back on it for another 60 minutes. So good to have you with us. James Fireman is here, courtesy Samfiru to Mark and LLP. Reach out to James anytime. Most positively reviewed firm in the country. How do you do it? 1-855-821-5900. Call the number. Have a chat. Email help at disabilityrights.ca and the uh, option to use mydisabilityquestions.com. That's kind of nifty because it's uh, it's free and it's anonymous. So feel free to ask your questions there. We'll try to get as many on the air here during the hour as we can. Uh, Ricky, in that regard, is coming up with our first email. But we always start off with the week that was something you've been working on, pal. What do you say, James? Well, I've started to have several cases get to maturity, get to the point where we're looking at resolving the case that involve long COVID. And so I thought it would be a useful opportunity to take a few minutes and talk about the issues with claiming disability benefits when you have suspected long COVID and how that plays out in practice. And the reason why it's of particular interest, of course, is not just the prevalence of long COVID that we see. It's you know, a, a condition that we are learning about. Mm-hmm. There is a great amount of research being uh, conducted on long COVID and what it really means, how it plays out, and how it can be most effectively treated. And the reality is when you take a look at the research that's being done, the articles that are being written, the answer is we don't know all that much. There are some things that we do understand about it, but for the most part, the medical community is still learning about this condition how it comes about and how to treat it. And that creates specific problems. For example, there isn't any particular test to determine whether or not you have long COVID. There are, of course, tests to determine whether you have contracted the COVID virus in the acute phase. Mm -hmm. But even assuming that you are tested and it shows positive, and we know very well that there are a lot of people that do contract COVID and don't know it or don't, don't go and get tested for it. And so there may not even be that evidence of it, but even for the people who are able to prove that they've had a COVID infection, there isn't any definitive way to prove that any subsequent symptoms that you are having that are unusual for you and fit with what we consider to be long COVID, which typically involves fatigue, often extreme fatigue, and cognitive issues, difficulty concentrating, brain fog. These are some of the classic long COVID symptoms that we see uh, with a lot of the people that contact us for disability. Even if you are having those symptoms, there isn't any way to prove definitively that you have long COVID. And so what happens quite frequently when people have long-term disability benefits and they are suffering from this extreme fatigue and difficulty with focus, with concentration, with their memory, they just at a certain point find it too difficult to continue in their job, especially if their job requires a high level of executive function. If they have to think a lot about what they are doing on a day-to-day basis, then those types of limitations, those types of functional impairments are going to cause a very serious issue, especially if the person is in a position where they're Uh, where their decisions involve the safety of themselves or others. And so in those situations in particular, but even for others who are suffering long COVID and are just suffering, I say just, are suffering from extreme fatigue, it's often going to be the case that they're just not able to continue working. The insurance companies, knowing that there isn't a definitive test for long COVID, even where someone has had a positive COVID test in the past, 
very frequently deny these claims unless there is something else that is objective that the person applying for benefits can rely on insurance companies in almost all cases are going to deny at the outset any claims that are based on long covid but that does not mean that you're not entitled to benefits your policy says you're entitled to benefits if you're suffering from a medical condition and long covid is certainly a medical condition Mm -hmm. that is preventing you from being able to do your occupation. And that is exactly the case. A lot of people won't understand that and will accept that uh, the insurer is not required to pay if it's long COVID and leave it at that. Don't do that. Because the reality is that insurers do not want to litigate these claims. They do not want anybody with long COVID bringing their case in front of the judge. And I know that because here we are more than three years since the start of COVID and there is not a single reported decision that I'm aware of in long-term disability based on COVID or long COVID. And that is very telling to me. That says to me that when people bring lawsuits that involve long COVID, the insurance companies are very eager to get those cases resolved. And the reason I think is fairly straightforward. Right now, with no reported cases of long COVID, with no judge giving their mm -hmm. opinion on whether or not long COVID is something that insurers are required to pay benefits on, insurers at the application stage can say, okay, well, we're not required to pay you this, there's no proof that you're disabled. As soon as a case involving long COVID goes before a judge and there is a decision from a judge, which would be publicly available to anybody, it will be very clear that insurers are required to pay those benefits. And as soon as that happens, as soon as a judge makes that kind of a decision, it will be reported widely. It is the type of decision that news outlets will carry and will be widely dispersed so that people understand that. And what's going to happen when that type of story is widely available to everyone across the country? Well, everybody who has had COVID, who believes they might be suffering from long COVID, is going to bring an application for long-term disability benefits. And the insurers know that's going to cost them millions of dollars. And so they do not want these cases in front of a judge. And so if you are suffering from long COVID, if you've had COVID in the past or believe that you've had COVID in the past, and subsequently, you're suffering from the classic long COVID conditions and that's preventing you from working, you are actually in a very good position to challenge the denial of your disability benefits because insurance companies are very eager when you bring a lawsuit to come to the table and resolve those claims. And that has been my experience across the board. When I have these long-term disability cases that involve long COVID, I see eagerness from the other side that often isn't there, at least to that extent, when, it is, when long COVID is not one of the conditions being relied on by my client. I guess the potential of floodgates opening up is the, uh, is the uh, you know, worry of the day for the insurance companies, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, wow. sheer, the sheer volume of cases that would result from right. one, one reported decision, just a single reported decision, is staggering. Because we know how widespread COVID is, and the reports on the number of long COVID cases is really quite shocking. I mean, there are some estimates that say up to a third of people that were infected with COVID are suffering from some form of long COVID for months, even years afterwards. And so if that is in fact the case, even if a small percentage of those people 
are impacted to the extent that they cannot continue to work. That is an enormous volume yeah. of cases for all of the insurance companies, and they don't want that. Absolutely. Let's move on to Ricky James. First email of the day says, guys, my union has told me that if I have a problem with my LTD payment, I will have to hire a lawyer at my own expense. The union will not help me if there is a problem. Is that true? My insurance company is not paying me properly, nor are they paying me on time. My union is doing nothing about it. They suggest I hire a long-term disability lawyer on my own. If if this were television, you would see me holding my hand up right now. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is this is a problem that a lot of people who are unionized have. Understandably, uh, people who are unionized have an expectation that their union is going to be there for them and is going to be able to help them in this type of situation. But that is rarely the case. In mo- in most cases that we see, the unions are simply not equipped to deal with long-term disability, to help their their union members navigate issues that arise in dealing with the insurance company, in dealing with late payments, in dealing with unfair denials. Their focus is simply on other things. And I suppose that that's understandable. Unions are not expected to be experts in long-term disability. It is something that affects a small portion of their membership. And with few exceptions, they're just not in a position to be able to provide you with the support necessary. So, yeah, it is almost always the case that you're going to be on your own to hire an outside lawyer. And that's what we do at our firm. I mean, we have a disability department. And of those of us that are practicing disability, that is our focus. That is what we do almost 100% of the time. And there are other firms that practice the same way. It's just not something that most unions are equipped for. Now, I say that, but it is important to understand that there are some unions where the collective bargaining agreement between the union and the employer makes it impossible for you to actually hire an outside lawyer. The collective bargaining agreement in those situations has language that would prevent you hiring outside counsel and would actually require, if there is any dispute about long-term disability benefits, it would require you to address that through the grievance or arbitration procedure that is governed by the collective bargaining agreement. And that can be a good or bad thing. In some cases, having that structure in place is actually helpful. There's just a path to deal with those issues. In other cases, people are just sort of left to their own devices and are astray. But unfortunately for people who are in that situation, who have collective bargaining agreements that prevent them from hiring a lawyer, there isn't anything that we can do. The good news is if you don't know whether that's you or not, and you're in a union, you can simply call us and we can take a look at the collective bargaining agreement, most of which we can find online. And usually it's a matter of a couple minutes and we can figure out whether or not it's a situation that we can help you with. And so if you're in that scenario and you want to know, give us a call and we'll let you know if it's something that we can get involved in. Ricky, appreciate you reaching out, pal. Now here's that phone number as we get into a break. You'll follow up with James, I'm sure, one 855 821-5900. We'll continue with more of your emails and questions through mydisabilityquestions.com as well. So that's uh, that's on the way. We'll continue here with the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You bet. Back at it. Disability Law Show. John Scholes and, of course, James Fireman is here answering all the questions, doing the heavy lifting, as they say. And uh, you can reach out to James uh, anytime you'd like. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. 
and uh, also mydisabilityquestions.com. They get answered regularly as well. Might appear on this show. Uh, Denise up next says, um, I am needing some advice from you, please, regarding my current claim. I have been receiving my LTD payments since 2018. Last year, they sent me a letter saying my benefits would continue until I turned 65. That would be 2026. However, recently I received a letter saying my benefits would stop in September 2023. Uh, Hasn't yet. uh, The insurance called me and apologized for the mistake, for the stress it has caused me. Uh, She didn't stop apologizing. They even extended my payments from September to December of 2023. Uh, What I'm wondering is, can I hold them to this letter since they said 2026 that is what I was planning on. I still can't return to work. So there's a few different ways I would approach this. Denise's situation is one where, at least in terms of what was said by the insurance company, I'd really want to take a look at the specific notification she was given that told her that they were going to continue benefits until age 65 in 2026. It is unusual that insurance company would say that definitively. Usually they would add a qualification. Uh, We'll continue paying you benefits until you're 65 as long as the medical information continues to support disability. That is typically what we would see. And if you see that, then that's not a promise to continue paying. That's basically saying we'll continue to abide by the policy, which at the end of the day is really not saying anything. And so if that is what was said, then I don't know that there is much to be done in terms of trying to force the insurance company to abide by this previous statement because the previous statement they can always say is, you know, was qualified on whether or not the medical evidence continues to support disability. And they are now taking the position that it does not, that Denise's medical evidence does not continue to support disability. And that's the second way I would look at this. So Denise ends her email by saying she still can't return to work and presuming that she continues to have the support of her doctors, then she certainly can challenge that decision by the insurance company. And just looking at this from a practical perspective, Denise has been getting her disability payments for five years, which means for the last three years, the insurance company has concluded that she suffers from a disability that's preventing her from being able to work in any occupation that she's qualified for by training, education, or experience. And so unless something has changed, unless there is a change in the medical evidence showing a significant improvement in her functional abilities, something that would suggest that she is now able to return to some other occupation and not just any occupation, by the way, an occupation that would pay her something in the realm of 60% of what she had been making before. Absent that evidence, then there is no basis for the insurance company to take the position she's no longer entitled to benefits. And they have the onus of proving that at this point means It is up to them now. Usually when you make an application for long-term disability benefits, you have the burden of proof. You have the onus of proving that you are disabled under the policy. But once you've been on your on claim for more than two years, they're paying you under the any occupation period. And in this case, have been doing so for three years. That onus has shifted. Now it's up to the insurance company to prove that you no longer qualify for disability benefits, that there has been a change in circumstances 
sufficient that you are no longer meeting the definition under the policy. And that's going to be pretty difficult for them if there isn't strong evidence suggesting a change. You know, sometimes I suppose there might be, you know, a change in medication that might lead to that. But for most situations where you're talking about someone who's been on disability for five years, it's going to be unusual that there's going to be some sudden improvement in their functional abilities that is magically just going to all of a sudden allow them to be able to return to work. And so I would suspect there is a very strong basis to challenge the decision of the insurance company in this case. And with that, we can move on to uh, to Garrison. We got time for that one. Says, "Hey guys, currently on LTD, not having any issues with my provider yet, but have a concern. Perhaps you can help me with. I've been collecting LTD for the past four years due to shoulder injuries, unsuccessful uh, surgery. I'm being paid the same monthly benefit now as I was four years ago. I just wonder why there's not a cost of living increase to help with the rising cost of food, housing, etc., etc. I think there should be some sort of yearly increases to assist us in paying our everyday expenses. If you have any insight into this, that would be greatly appreciated. That's coming from uh, from Garrison. It's a good question from Garrison, really. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and that's yeah. a question that we we see relatively frequently. And what this is referring to is a cost of living adjustment in the short form is COLA, C-O-L-A, cost of living adjustment. A COLA is, I'd say, present on maybe 30 or 40% of the files that I deal with. So that means that the policy that's been negotiated between your employers, and it's a group policy, and the insurance company will have that written into the contract and it will say that every year you're entitled to an X percent increase. Sometimes it can be more complicated. Sometimes it'll be X percent, but no more than 3% and it's tied to whatever index is agreed to be a reasonable index of inflation. Usually it's capped off at two or 3%. Uh, we see that with teachers in Ontario, for example. Uh, teachers in Ontario are typically capped off at a 2% cost of living adjustment. But on many policies, and I would say more than half of them, as I mentioned before, there is no cost of living adjustment. You simply just get that monthly benefit that's determined at the outset year over year. And that is difficult, especially if you're in a situation where you suffer a serious disability relatively early on in your working life. Let's say you're in your early 30s and you're in a, you have a significant accident that uh, it causes a brain injury, for example, and puts you in a situation where you're never going to be able to return to work. In that scenario, if you don't have a cost of living adjustment, and let's say your monthly benefit is $3,500 a month, well, that might be sufficient for you now. It might be a little difficult, but perhaps that's enough today. But if you're 30 years old and that benefit is going to continue to pay up until 65, that $3,500 a month 35 years from now is going to be worth considerably less in terms of the buying power just because of inflation. It's probably going to be worth less than half of what it is now, probably even less than that given the way inflation's going right now. And so if you don't have a cost of living adjustment in that kind of scenario, that's a really difficult spot. But the problem is this is not something that is uh, mandated or required to be in every policy is just something that is negotiated. Where there is a cost of living adjustment, you pay for that. It means that the policy is a better policy, and if it's a better policy, it means the premiums are more expensive. 
it costs the employer more to provide a benefit, a disability benefit, that includes a cost of living adjustment than it would if it didn't. And because of that, most, most employers choose disability plans that don't have that cost of living adjustment. That's just the reality of it because they want to be able to provide disability benefits, but there's a limit to how much they're prepared to pay. Sure. And so we, you know, we see that actually more often with unions, with unionized employees, where it's part of what's negotiated, where cost of living adjustment is required by the union to be part of the benefits package provided by the employer. Uh, more often than not, for non-unionized work environments, the employment package doesn't include that. But if you want to find out, you just have to go and take a look at your policy. And if it isn't there, you know, by all means, I would encourage you to raise that with your employer. If you are working somewhere and the LT policy doesn't have that, I mean, I'm not saying go into your boss's office and start banging the table with your fist and saying, we demand this, but it is... It is worth bringing up um, as just you know something that you've noticed that would be appreciated by the employees that uh, a cost of living adjustment might be something that would be very helpful for those that are disabled. Unfortunately, though, even if your employer is listening, if you're already receiving disability benefits and your employer decided that they should get a policy that has a cost of living adjustment, it wouldn't apply to you. It would only apply to those people who apply for benefits because they become disabled after that change in the policy takes effect. Now, obviously, you're not an insurance salesman. I got that, James. But if you're not on policy or if you're not on disability, you're just hearing what you said. Can you sidestep your employer, go right to the insurance, say, hey, as a little benefit, I will pay the extra outside of my work for this COLA? Or that's not generally something they'll do? For most group disability plans, they're typically not adjustable. They're not uh, modular in a way where you could add on different riders to allow you those additional benefits. That's not always the case. So it's at least worth asking about or checking your benefits booklet. But if if it is a concern to you, if you are worried that your disability benefits would be insufficient either at the outset or at least down the road if it doesn't have a cost of living adjustment, then you can certainly look into buying a private disability plan, which would pay on top of the group plan that you get through your employment. Now, obviously, if you do that, you're going to have to pay the premiums yourself. But what is available in that scenario is far more flexible. And you can choose things like a cost of living adjustment. You can choose... Uh, a policy where it is always based on your own occupation, where there's never a change of definition, which can be nice depending on what your what your occupation is and what you're prepared to do down the road. So there are a lot more possibilities if that is the way that you decide to go. And that's something to look at if your policy is insufficient to meet your needs. All right, let's get a quick question from Lucinda in here. It says, guys, I'm on LTD following cancer and have found out my entire department's been let go. If I'm offered a severance package, do I still collect my LTD? Well, that is a really good question. Typically speaking, if you get severance, if severance is paid in any particular period, the income you receive from that for that particular month is going to offset any benefits that you would get. So let's say that you were, Lucinda's offered a severance package which pays her starting in November for five months. I don't know what it would be, but let's say it's for five months. 
almost almost certainly during those five months she would not be entitled to collect ltd she would still be on claim she would still be disabled under the policy unless they challenge that but that's a whole separate issue but she wouldn't actually get paid anything because the severance payments would offset that so typically speaking when someone is in a scenario where they're dealing with both an employment issue and a disability issue we prefer to deal with the employment issue afterwards because if you do it that way you can keep the full benefit of both the disability benefits and the severance but sometimes you don't have a choice sometimes the severance will come when it comes if they're getting rid of the entire department and there might be an offset but even if you are let go, that doesn't mean your LTD benefits will end. All it means is that you won't collect them during the period that severance is applicable. Once that's over, even though you've been let go by your employer, you're still entitled to continue collecting benefits up until either you're 65 or until you're no longer disabled under the policy. Well answered, my friend. With that, we will uh, take a short break, get back into more. Garrison, standby, fella. Your email is up next. And for you, anytime as well, during the show or otherwise, help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number to reach out to James, one 821 5900. We'll continue more. The Disability Law Show is coming up. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here hosting each week and joining me each week. Uh, James Fireman answering all of your questions via email. They keep coming in. They keep coming in. We get to as many as we can during the hour and on a weekly basis as well. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Your other avenue to ask questions, mydisabilityquestions.com. As promised, Garrison up next is James. I was uh, diagnosed with MS just before I started a new job. The symptoms did not affect my ability to do my job, at least at first. Fast forward two years and the symptoms have flared and makes my current duties impossible. Can the insurance company deny my application because the diagnosis was made before I started working? What do you think, pal? It's a really interesting question. And so here we're talking about the pre-existing exclusion. And so what we're, what we're looking at is a scenario where somebody has a medical condition that was present before they became insured under the policy that is disabling them once they are insured. And so usually the policy starts when you start a new job. So we're looking at what happened before. And Garrison has acknowledged he was he was diagnosed with MS just before he started working. So now we have to take a look at the policy. But the good news is that, at least in Garrison's case, for most disability policies, in fact, virtually everyone I've seen, the pre-existing exclusion would only apply if you became disabled from working within the first year of coverage. So in Garrison's case, it would only apply if in the first year after he started his job, he became disabled from MS. And what he's told us is it's been two years at this point. So he's outside of virtually any pre-existing exclusion period that I've seen in a policy. So Garrison should be fine in this scenario. But for those who are listening at home and you want to understand how this would apply if you're within the first year, just because you're disabled in the first year, even if it is a condition that existed before, does not automatically mean that you're not going to be entitled to benefits. Now, again, we talk about disability policies as though they are all uniform, but they're not. 
for the definition of disability, both before and after the change of definition, that's usually the same policy to policy. But for the pre-existing exclusion, we actually see that there is a fair amount of variance in how it's treated from one insurance company to another. And even within the same insurance company, for different, for different group plans, it can be treated differently. So for example, for, for some scenarios, again, we're looking at this disability that arises within the first year of coverage. The question will be whether or not you were treated or were diagnosed within three months before. So if you receive any, any treatment or took any medication within the three months before you became covered, then you might be uh, excluded under that policy. But if it was something that has been dormant for five or 10 years and you weren't receiving any treatment, you weren't taking any medication, then you might still be okay. And there are other policies that will say that even if you had been treated within that period, if there is any 13-week period within the first year before you went on leave where you weren't receiving any treatment, then you're still okay. It's still an exception to that pre-existing exclusion. Now, this is getting a little bit into the weeds, and so perhaps it's better to just say this. If you are concerned about a pre-existing exclusion, if you become disabled from something that you had before you were covered under your disability policy, give us a call. Let's look at the policy and walk through your particular scenario, and we can help you find out whether or not this is something that is likely to be a problem or not. Garrison, thanks, pal. I'm going to give you the number if you haven't uh, dialed it or at least written it down already, which you probably have. It's a good chance you've done that. one 821 5900. I did mention mydisabilityquestions.com is a good place to get your questions uh, answered, asked right there on that website. They'll appear maybe on this show later on. Like this one says, guys, I'm currently on LTD and they want to eliminate it from our benefit package. How, what, and uh, will this uh, will this affect me? So this is actually a similar question in some ways to what Lucinda was asking the last segment here. And I, I, I kind of address that to some extent, but I'll be a little bit more specific about it now. So here, the, the person who wrote into mydisabilityquestions.com is pondering what happens if their employer decides that they are no longer going to offer LTD benefits to their employees, and that can happen. If you're already receiving LTD, if you've already, even if you're not receiving it yet, even if you've just applied, then your claim is crystallized at that moment. The moment that you apply for it, even actually if you haven't applied, even if you are just disabled and haven't gotten around to applying yet, your claim is crystallized the moment that you become disabled. And so if you can say that you became disabled, you know, three months ago, even if you haven't gotten around to bringing the application yet, and three months ago, this benefit was covered under your plan, you had coverage for LTD benefits, then it's not a concern for you. Mm -hmm. As long as your disability arose and was sufficient to prevent you from being able to do your own occupation at a point in time when you had this benefit as part of your package, then you're entitled to that benefit for as long as you continue to be disabled. So if you could apply for disability benefits a month ago. Let's say uh, you apply for disability benefits in July and in August, you still haven't gotten a decision from your insurer and your employer says, you know what, we're cutting out LTD benefits. We're no longer gonna offer that to any of our employees anymore. You're okay. 
you've already applied for the benefits, you've been disabled since July, you don't have to worry about the fact that your employer is no longer offering that benefit. You have to worry about what your insurer is going to do. They yeah. still may deny your claim, and then that's a whole other issue that we can deal with. But in terms of whether or not you have the entitlement to apply and to receive the benefits, if your insurance company agrees that you're disabled, not a concern for you because you're already crystallized in your coverage at the moment you become disabled. So that should reasonably answer that question, I think. Absolutely. And if it doesn't, they can always follow up with a phone call. we got a couple more emails to get through uh, with the remaining time in the show, but that uh, that phone call can be made if you want to sidestep that. one 821 5900 But the email address is there as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. A few minutes to go right here on the Disability Law Show. All right, we're back. A few minutes to go here on the Disability Law Show. James Fireman is always reachable outside this hour. As you know, we tell you to to call James and his uh, his team. He's got uh, a great team assembled behind him. one 821 is how you go about doing that. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. And you always have the option of mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a beauty because it's uh, a way to type your questions into your desktop, laptop, smartphone, tablet, whatever. It's anonymous too. So uh, you can check that out. Kelly's up next. Guys, I have eight years left um, with my long-term disability. Would my insurer be willing to pay me off for about five, maybe six years if I sign off? I'm thinking about moving to another country. Now, it doesn't say whether they're offering this, James, or she's trying to put it towards them. Big different story, right? Yeah, it, this is a so there are two issues that are popping out for me here. Yeah. The first is the idea about trying to settle out with your insurer while they're paying you benefits, mm-hmm. and the other is the extent to which you're able to move. And so we'll talk about those separately. So the the first issue is the idea of approaching your insurance company while you are receiving long term disability benefits about trying to get them to pay out. And that can be really, really dangerous and is something that I generally will discourage anyone from looking to unless it's absolutely necessary. And by absolutely necessary, I mean you have such an urgent need for money that you're prepared to significantly compromise on the value of your future benefits in order to get a lump sum. And even then it can be a really bad idea. Because your insurance company, if they are paying you benefits on an ongoing basis, if they've been paying you, especially beyond that change of definition, then it can be very difficult for them to cut you off. And especially so as you get closer to age 65, as you get to a point where uh, your benefits are going to uh, run out at 65 and they've been paying you, it becomes very difficult for them to be able to justify terminating your benefits. And so if you were to approach them and say, okay, I'm looking at uh, trying to settle out here, they're going to look at it in one of two ways. They're going to either assume that you are in a position where you are in such financial distress that you're going to take as little uh, as they that they'll offer, or they're going to assume that you've gotten better and that you're about to return to work. In either case, you're giving up all kinds of leverage. You're making it so that your insurance company is going to have a very easy time of lowballing you. And that five or six years is very unlikely, even in the best case scenario, even if they were approaching you, it's really unlikely that your insurance company would ever consider paying five or six years if there are only eight years left. Uh, So I, I wouldn't recommend doing that. I think it puts you in a really difficult position. 
The other issue that Kelly's email brings up is the issue about the ability to move while you're receiving long-term disability benefits. In most LTD policies, there's going to be a provision that will limit what you're able to do. Sometimes it will say that you can move outside of the country, or sometimes we'll call it the jurisdiction, uh, for no more than two weeks without prior approval. Sometimes it's a month. I've seen three months. I've even seen six months. And on rare occasions, I have seen policies where it will say that it, where it won't give any particular limitation. But that's pretty unusual. What you first need to do is take a look at your policy and see what the restrictions are. But then you have to consider what is going to be possible within those restrictions and whether or not it makes sense to do it. Because if you start traveling for any great period of time, your insurer is probably going to take a look at that and try and find a way to use that as evidence that you are not disabled from work. Now, obviously, their ability to make that claim, to take that position, is going to depend, one, on the kind of disability that you have. If you have a physical disability, as long as there's a reasonable basis for you being able to stay on a plane for however many hours it takes you to get where you're going, then it wouldn't be a great argument. Uh, but you know, the, the other issue is that they're going to take a look at the type of occupation that you have as well, too. And so if the occupation is one where the types of things that you might be doing to arrange for travel or the types of activities you might be doing while you're traveling are in any way similar to your occupation, and that would probably be unusual, then they'll try and find a way to argue that you are not disabled because of your ability to travel. So you really want to take a look at that as well. But in Kelly's scenario, you want to take a look at what is allowed under the policy. And perhaps Kelly has a policy that is more permissive than most. Perhaps the, the policy would allow her to travel for up to six months without getting prior permission. Even so, again, I would be pretty careful about that because you don't want to give your insurer any reason to cut you off before your benefits are done. And even if you are entitled to go for six months without having to get prior approval from your insurer, you certainly don't want to do that without getting uh, approval from your doctors. You want to talk to your doctors and make sure that they're aware of your travel plans, that they don't believe that there is any issue with your being able to travel because of your mm -hmm. disability. And more importantly, that you're going to be able to continue getting treatment for your disability while you are traveling, whether it's for six months or three months or even two weeks. You wanna show that there is not going to be any unreasonable disruption, that you have your medications available in advance and that uh, you are doing what you can to ensure ongoing treatment, whether it's virtual treatment or whether you're going to see a provider in wherever you are planning to travel. And often that can be arranged in advance. And so when you make those travel plans, you want to approach your insurance company with that information already in hand. You want to be able to say, okay, well, this is what my plan is. I understand my policy allows me to travel for up to two weeks or a month without having to get permission. It's my intention to travel to BC for, for three weeks. I've talked to my doctors and here's a note from my doctor saying that there isn't any issue in terms of my disability with being able to travel. And here's what I'm doing. I'm getting virtual therapy and I have all my medications in advance. And if you do that, then you've put yourself in the best position possible and your insurer won't have an easy way to say that you've in any way violated the policy and they're entitled to cut you off. 
And with that, guys, we're uh, we're just about done and out of time. I still got a pile of emails and stuff to get through, James, but that'll wait till uh, till next week's show for sure. So keep sending them along. We try to. Uh, work our way through as many as we can each hour that we do the show but in the meantime you can always reach out as well and not just for the show for any other time help at disabilityrights.ca that's the email address we always use i mentioned my disabilityquestions.com that website's free and anonymous it's searchable as well and for any other questions in fact it's pretty easy to use it's been around a, a short time called pocket disability lawyer.ca again free and anonymous and the phone call you might just want to go right to the phone call after all, that is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. And thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.